Would you pray with me, please? Father, we have gathered to worship you and to hear from you so that we can worship you. So now, God, fuel our worship by your word. May your spirit be free to do as beautiful work in us as we are taught, as we sit under your word expectantly. God, meet us, teach us, and guide us now. Change us now, God, we pray. Amen. When I was growing up in a small town in the Midwest, um, there's a band of brothers of mine that all came to know Christ about the same time in high school. And uh, we were mentored um, kind of remotely by a fellow whose name was Dick Belsley. Dick Belsley led to Christ, the guy who led us to Christ. And Dick was a full-time Christian worker with an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. He was stationed in Hawaii where they shared the gospel with lots of people. And Dick sometimes would come back to our little hometown in the middle of nowhere, and it was a big deal for us. Uh, He was kind of a guru to us, and he would mentor us and teach us and encourage us and uh, try to teach us how to share Christ with people. So I remember going out and picking up hitchhikers with Dick and trying to talk with them about Christ and going to bowling alleys and trying to talk with people about Jesus. And it was always a train wreck, um, but we loved him for it and we respected him for it. And eventually Dick moved back to our little hometown and started a ministry to a local uh, college there called Bradley University. And Dick would go over there and disciple and uh, share Christ with students and was also able to spend a lot more time with us. And as I watched Dick's life, I realized he was an earnest man, hard after God, and he was a healthy guy. He ran. He took good care of himself. He ate stuff that was good for you and tasted bad. Um, He was really a, a healthy guy in every way, spiritually, physically, all around. And that's why I think for me it was such a shock when, I don't know, five or so years ago, I sat by Dick's couch as he laid on the couch, um, his face half eaten away by the cancer that was just about to take his life. And you just wonder, why Dick? Why a man who devoted his life to God, who ate right and took care of himself, Why would he be the one laying there suffering? Why would he die of cancer? You know, that's a common thing throughout history. It's happened. You've got stories. You know people. And oftentimes God's people have turned to the book of Job, seeking an answer to the why of undeserved suffering. And as they've looked there in the book of Job for that specific answer to that specific question, why, they've often been disappointed. I ran across in my preparation for this message a recent book title. It's called Deconstructing Theodicy, but the interesting part is the subtitle, Why Job Has Nothing to Say to the Puzzle of Suffering. And while I suppose that title is fitting in a sense, because if you come to the book of Job looking for a succinct, clear answer to why it is that the innocent suffer, you'll probably be disappointed. Um, 
But in another sense, that title completely misses the answer that Job does make to the puzzle of suffering. I think it doesn't speak to why, but it does speak to how. And it most definitely speaks to who. When you hear that first chapter of the book of Job read to you, as you did just a few moments ago, you are confronted with the inescapable reality that suffering comes to all of us, even the best of us, even when we're at the top of our game. And so in the, in the first chapter of the book of Job, we meet a man um, at the top of his game. Blameless and upright, Job is, a man who fears God and shuns evil, three daughters, seven sons, and enormously wealthy. Back in the day, they kept score with cattle and livestock and camels and such. And Job was, he was the, the greatest man amongst all the people of the East, he says. Unquestionably godly, he would offer seemingly almost on a daily basis, sacrifices for his children. Perhaps they have sinned and cursed God in their heart. And this was his custom, we're told. Well, unbeknownst to Job, righteous Job, in the heavenly courtroom, there's a wager going on between Satan, the accuser, and God. God says, look at Job. He's he's faithful. He's a faithful worshiper. And Satan says, yeah, but he only worships you because of what he gets out of it. Take it away, and he'll curse you to your face. And so on that fateful day, not one, not two, not three, but four messengers come back to back to back, telling Job, you've lost everything. Camels, oxen, servants, children, all of them. So, how does righteous Job respond? Verse 20, at this Job got up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell to the ground in worship and he said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And on the heels of losing everything, all ten of his children, in one day, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And Satan was proved wrong. But he does not yield, and things get worse in chapter 2 when yet a second test comes to Job. There's another day that the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him. To ruin without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will certainly, surely curse you to your face. 
The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must, you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. And Job took a piece of pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And he replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God? And not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now what is going on here? Is God, or is Job just some kind of little pawn in some friendly wager between God and Satan? Is he being abused just so God can have a little fun with him? I think it's much, much, much more than that. I think it is the proving of Job's faith as being rooted in love for the giver and not merely the gift. It is the proving of that faith in such a way that God is exalted over Satan in Job's life. And that is the thing that you and me that we were made for. That is the thing that we were bought for. And that is the thing on our best days that we live for. For the exaltation of God over evil. That He alone would get the glory from our life. We are not in it. We are not in this faith of ours. Just for the stuff, we are in it for God Himself. Now, I want you to notice several things, or just a couple of things in our text that are uh, perhaps puzzling and hard, but also dear to us. First of all, notice that suffering and evil are within God's providence and used for His purposes to the extent that God claims responsibility for Job's suffering. It is He who brought it upon him. You can look at verse 3 if you have questions about that. Nothing is outside the providential rule and care of God. Nothing. Not evil, not suffering. Now, the other thing that I want you to see, and this becomes important in the conversations that will follow this, uh, these chapters, it's not God who brings up, establishes, or promotes the connection between righteousness and prosperity. That comes from Satan. And when you find yourself, as you surely will, exposed to teachers today who make a one-to-one correspondence between your righteousness and your wealth, just remember Job 1 and where that teaching comes from. It is not of God. Now, at the end of our chapter, we meet Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. 
Now, these guys had heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, and they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. This week I was out in the front yard, and I found some poison ivy. I have a son who's fairly susceptible to that, so I tackled it, cut it off, and I got some. My forearm, full of blisters as a result of it. Nasty, oozing blisters. So was Job top of his head to the bottom of his feet, such that his friends scarcely recognized him. Now, as our story unfolds, Job's friends um, are going to take a bit of a beating, as they should. But I want you to know, these are friends. These are true friends. And they sit with Job and comfort him and sympathize with him in silence for seven days and seven nights. They are his friends at the start, and they will be his friends at the end. In spite of all their ill-informed counsel, they are the kind of friends that we all wish we had, at least in this chapter. Well, in chapter 3, after this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. May the day of my birth perish. And the night it was says, a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it. Once more, may a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. And he's just getting started. Job is saying, I wish I'd never been born. Some of you know what that feels like. And Job's strong lament triggers a response in Job's friends. And what follows, honestly, is about 30 chapters of bad advice. And they come from three guys who have been described in this fashion. The first is a fellow named Eliphaz. Eliphaz is essentially a philosopher whose characteristic mode of discourse is, as I have observed. He says, as I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. He's the philosopher amongst them. The second guy is Bildad, and Bildad is more of the traditionalist. Um, he counsels learning from former generations. He says, ask the former generations. Find out where their, why their fathers, what their fathers learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing. And our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? So he's kind of a fiddler on the roof guy. Tradition. Okay. Remember what the others have taught us. Now there is a third friend. He's what I would call an arrogant dogmatist. He's a theorist, theorist, it says, and probably the least attractive of the friends. He lacks compassion. He tends to beat Job with his speech as a stick. 
Chapter 20, Zophar says, My troubled thoughts prompt me to answer because I am greatly disturbed. I hear a rebuke that dishonors me. And my understanding inspires me to reply. Now, these are Job's friends. And these are how they engage him time and time and time again. And in those 30 chapters, these three friends have three go, uh, goes at Job. They try him and Job answers. They try him again and Job answers. And they try him a third time and Job answers. And you could summarize their debates this way. The first debate, they say, Job, you're a sinner and you need to repent. This comes out of their belief that suffering is directly related to sin. One-to-one correspondence. Job has the suffering, therefore he is a sinner and he needs to repent. Job rebuts that. So they come back the second time a little louder. Job, you are wicked and God is punishing you. Job comes back and protests his integrity once more. And the third time, you have committed these specific sins. And they begin to list them. Sins that you would never expect to be applied to righteous Job. They said to Job, is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your brothers for no reasons. You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you are a powerful man, owning land, an honored man, living on it. And you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you. So this is absolutely contrary to what we know about Job from his reputation and from what God has said about him. They're just so caught up in the debate, it has escalated to a point where now they're making false accusations against him. It's kind of like a political campaign. Imagine that. Um, But the problems, the biggest problems his friends have are really twofold. One is that way of thinking, that theology, that there's a one-to-one correspondence in this day between sin and suffering and righteousness and prosperity. Now, you sin, you will suffer. Now, you do well, honor God, and you will become prosperous. Now. And there is no room for anything outside of that. There is no room for suffering by those who are innocent. That is, undeserved. They did nothing to provoke the level of suffering that they are enduring. And they have absolutely no room for that in their thinking. But all of Job's suffering and all of his friends pressing upon him, this misinformed counsel, it takes its toll on Job. And he begins to question God. Maybe even deny his justice. In chapter 27, Job continues his discourse, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul. Job has been pushed to the point where he is now beginning to question God earnestly. Well, following that, this series of three debates with his three friends, a fourth friend comes onto the scene, and his name is Elihu. And it's interesting. His counsel is the longest of the three. It lasts for chap, probably five or six chapters. And it's not rebutted by Job. Job does not have a comeback to Elihu. Nor is Elihu required to repent of his counsel, such as the other three are later in the book. His counsel differs from the other three. Some have summarized it this way. Um, 
and I apologize, I've lost the clarity on this in, in but each line comes from a different, the three friends are first and Elihu is second. The three friends say sin leads to suffering. Elihu would say suffering leads to sin if you're not careful. They would say suffering is retributive. He would say suffering is protective. God is doing something good through your suffering. They would say suffering is punitive. He would say it's educational. They would say Job should repent, and he would say Job should learn from his suffering. They would say Job should initiate restoration with God, and he would say God had initiated restoration with him. His counsel is different. It's wiser. But most importantly, it's counsel that aligns closely with the message of God to Job that is to follow. Um, At the end of Elihu's counsel to Job. It's like a thunderstorm comes up, and he sees it, and he sees God in it, and he speaks to Job this way. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? You who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies hard as a mirror of cast bronze? Tell us what we would say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he be told that I want to speak? Would any man ask to be swallowed up? And out of that same storm then, in keeping with what Elihu has just said, God himself now speaks to Job. The Lord answered Job out of that storm. And he said, Who is this, speaking to Job, that, counsel, that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. And you shall answer me. The tables are turned. Job has been questioning God, waiting for an answer. And now God says, No, no, no. I'm going to ask questions. And you give me answers. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea? Behind doors when it burst forth from the womb. When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it. And set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves stop. See, Job had so wanted to have an interview with the Almighty. You know, throughout his responses to his three friends, he's saying, oh, if only I could plead my case before God. He says in chapter 31, oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Job had so wanted to plead his case before God, but it's not turning out the way he'd expected. Essentially, Job is getting an oral exam by God in cosmology, oceanography, meteorology, astronomy, and zoology. You ever had an oral exam? I had a professor in college that gave oral exams. He was one of my engineering professors. And 
he was a, a believer in Christ, and when I went in to sit down with him to do my interview, um, he, he knew in that oral exam, five minutes in the exam, he knew A, B, C, or worse. Okay? It did not take him long to sort out where you were. But at that time, I was preparing for what I thought was going to be uh, a trip to the mission field. And so he knew that, and he sat down with me, and he said, Larry, we'd been designing water treatment systems. He says, okay, you're in Africa, in a village, no power, and no running water source. I want you to design a water treatment system for the water supply that they do have. We never talked about that in class. Are you kidding me? And we talked about the pieces that are supposed to show up. And then he smiles and says, that one's just for you. This one was just for Job. And God wanted to let him know what he did not know. He continues in chapter 39. He says, do you know, Job, when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain. Do you give the horse his strength or close his neck with a flowing mane? Does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high? Verse chapter 40, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. See, Job is recovering his balance before Almighty God. Um, John Piper put it this way. He says, Job is getting the point. A finite creature has no wisdom to run this world and is utterly ignorant of 99.999% of its processes, has no business instructing his master and ruler how to run the world, even condemning God for the way he runs it. Job is regaining his humility. But the exam is not over. In chapter 40, God says, Look at the behemoth. This is a mythical creature, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins. What power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God. Yet his maker can approach him with his sword. Then in chapter 41, he says, can you pull in the Leviathan, another creature, with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders barter for him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? God says. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. And in these two monstrous creatures, sometimes they're associated, I think, with the hippopotamus and the crocodile, but more likely they're representative of um, evil and death and God's control over even those parts of his creation. Um, such that what God is saying here 
is that death and evil serve my great and good purposes. Can you make them serve you, Job? And this is Job's response. Um, I'm have to, I'm probably going to have to read it to you. I think I lost that slide. It's Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, God, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears, Job says, had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in, ju- in dust and ashes. So Job is humbled and brought to repentance after this encounter with God. Now, what is Job repenting of? He's not repenting of sins that brought the suffering upon him. It's more, it's more in keeping with what we see here that he's repenting of his pride before God. See, Job used to say, God, why is it that I am suffering so? I have been righteous. But subtly it begins to change and begins to say, God, why is it that I am suffering so? Me, Job, the righteous one, you have it wrong, God. Let me plead my case before you. You know, when I, when I grew up, um, I had an older brother who was really good at doing things with his hands. He was good with cars. He was good at shop. You know, you can tell the difference in us by the things that remain from our childhood creations. My brother in shop class in high school made a desk. Okay? It lived in our home until my parents sold our home. Uh, years and years later, he made a desk, and that survived his high school career. Uh, what survived for me was a Pinewood Derby race car from Cub Scouts. Okay. Um, little block of wood, roughly sanded, painted, got red paint on the wheel, and yes, my dad had to help me. Okay. So when you compare my little Pinewood Derby race car with my brother's desk, it becomes evident um, which one of us had the goods in that particular area. Now imagine that I take my little Pinewood Derby car and I hold it up and I say, Hey, God, you know who you're messing with? I'm the guy who made this little Pinewood Derby car here. Okay? Me. Yes, Dad helped, but I made the car and got the paint on the wheel. See, you you guys are a lot better at this stuff than me. Some of you, you make furniture like my brother. Some of you make houses. Some of you make corporations, computer programs. But when you stand before God and you hold up what you've made, it's just like a little seven-year-old Cub Scout with his Pinewood Derby car. And God ascends back to his throne when we see him for who he is. Job's focus changed because he saw God and he bows low in humble submission. You know, it's interesting. You read this story. Job 
never learns. He never learns why he suffered. He doesn't know about this cosmic battle between God and Satan. He doesn't know about that wager. He doesn't know. He never knows. He doesn't need to know. Because the answer to the problem of suffering is not why, it's who. And now Job knows who holds his suffering in his hands. And that's enough for Job. See, Job's suffering is in the hands of the one who's responsible for the creating and sustaining of everything wonderful and wondrous in Job's world. From constellations in the night sky to the flight of an eagle, from the ocean's boundaries to the ways of the ostrich, the one whom even death and evil must submit to. It is that one whom Job repents before. And it is that one to whom Job is at last able to entrust all of his inexplicable suffering, and it's enough. It's enough for Job. Now, in Job's life, we have a case study in how to suffer well. With integrity and faith intact, Job never denies God, never once seeks to deny his faith. Faith intact, trusting, even worshiping God through it all, Job never denies his God. Because, in the end, he sees God. Now, this morning, I know that you're, many of you here are suffering. For some of you, it's just nagging daily annoyances. I have a friend. He opens his car door with a rope. Every day, opens it with a rope. Stupid car, opens the door every day with a rope. It's nagging every day. You have things like that in your life. They drive you crazy. But some of you are here and your suffering is more Job-like. You've had a great loss. You've lost a child. Or you're wrestling with a terminal illness. See, Job sees God and is able to submit to Him and trust Him. Even amidst Horrific, undeserved suffering. Where can we get a glimpse of God like that? Do we have to go out and hang out in thunderstorms? Hoping for a glimpse? You know, it's interesting in this whole thing. Job says, you know, I used to, I heard of you, but now I've seen you. But God didn't appear to Job. He spoke to him. He revealed himself through his words to Job. And what Job saw in the portrait painted by those words was what was enough for him. Could it be that should we look in this book, the self-revelation of God's words to us, that in this self-portrait, this revelation from God, we'll find a God so great that we can trust Him with suffering that we don't understand. 
I think that's what Job is telling us. See, the rest of the book unfolds in stunning fashion. You'll hear it read in just a moment. Um, in chapter 42, verse 7 and 8, the Lord said these things to Job, and he said to Eliphaz the Timonite, one of Job's three friends, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what's right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job, <laughs> Job will pray for you, the self-righteous ones. And I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what's right, as my servant Job has. What's the big difference between what they said and what Job said? There's a lot of similarity, honestly, as you read through it. Job is much more on track, for sure. But I think the big difference may not be all their debates, but what Job has just said in chapter 42, where he says to God, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think what Job spoke rightly of God was exalting him and humbling himself before him. Something we never see Job's friends do until they bring these sacrifices at the end. And as you hear read in just a moment, grace again comes to Job in stunning fashion. God restores his life unbelievably. But you know what? Before that ever happened, it was enough for Job that he saw God and knew who he was. Even before his suffering was relieved. Do you know God like that? Is your vision of God so overwhelming as to cause you to bow low before him? Unanswered questions intact and trust him with the total loss of whatever matters to you. The death of a child. Physical suffering seemingly beyond your ability to bear. See, we have the advantage. We look back on Job through the cross and the resurrection, the great demonstration of God's goodness that now stands up against this great portrait of God's sovereignty in the book of Job. It seems to me that the great lesson of the book of Job is simply this. There is a God, and you are not Him. And He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your worship, even, even in the midst of inexplicable suffering. We do not need to know why God does what He does if we know Him. Job is a book that deals with persevering faith and enduring worship. This morning, with whatever suffering a sovereign God has permitted in your world, would you bow with me and worship him as this closing piece of Job is read to us? Let's bow together.